Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Tim Rooney about his book, John Beeline at Michigan, A Basketball Revival. Tim Rooney, welcome to the show. Thanks, Paul. It's great to be here. Excited to talk to you. Same here. Um, Tim, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling the listeners a little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I grew up just outside Boston, uh, a town called Newton, just outside of that, in a passionate basketball household. Uh, been following the game all my life. Wound up going to Ann Arbor for college, uh, spent four years there at the University of Michigan and uh, did not have the greatest team during that run. Uh, so was thrilled when John Beeline eventually did get hired and, and things changed a bit. Um, and, uh, professionally I work as a baseball scout for the Toronto Blue Jays, uh, evaluating players, uh, across the minor and major leagues, uh, for them. So, uh, scouting and development, evaluating and development have always been, uh, fascinations of mine that extend to basketball, which, you know, is, is, um, right there with baseball in terms of sports that, that I, that I really love. So, uh, this was my first experience actually writing. Um, you know, outside of a, a whole lot of scouting reports, uh, hadn't done anything official, uh, but it, it was a, a really enjoyable process. So my first question is, um, what prompted you to write a book about John Beeline and his time in Michigan? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, his entire run was, was pretty neat to watch up close um, you know, I was really moved to document what I felt was just an incredible run. Uh, I'm fascinated by great coaches and, you know, his style of coaching as a teacher, uh, as somebody who's sort of always in control, I always felt like separated him from the yellers, you know, which you see all over, especially in the college game. That's sort of the common approach. Um, so that really appealed to me. His ability to evaluate and develop really resonated with me, um, you know, especially due to, to the similarities with my work. And then, you know, basically as he was having his best years, I was, you know, raising young kids and, and the values that, that he demonstrated and, and upheld and, and just the messaging that he had were examples, you know, for my children, but for myself as it as much as anything that I wanted to, you know, convey and learn and, you know, hopefully coach uh, my kids in the same fashion. So it, it's, it's evident from reading the book that you conducted a great deal of research for this book. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your research process? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, 
a great deal of it was conducted before I ever even knew I wanted to write a book, uh, just by being, you know, a, a passionate fan that was right there following the program as closely as you can from, you know, hundreds and at times thousands of miles away. Um, so I knew that story already, but once I was really motivated, which was sort of down the stretch of the 2017-18 season where I, I decided this is something I, I was driven to do. Uh, I set about curating all the media I could find to, to really document the specifics. Um, you know, I, lacking any media credentials, I, I wasn't able to gain any access, uh, you know, insider privileges or anything. Uh, oh, that was something I looked into, but I needed to collect the quotes. I needed to tell the story and the participants' words and, uh, and, and have all the statistics and facts to back it up. So, you know, I went about transcribing press conferences over the years, uh, videos, podcasts, collecting quotes that way, you know, scoured newspaper and web stories and, uh, you know, just put it all together to, to try and craft as thorough and as detailed a historical record as possible. Right. And I should mention, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, that I, too, graduated from the University of Michigan and am a big fan of the basketball program and John Beeline in particular. So um, I hope I don't come across too biased. But, um, <laughs> I, I, I will say as a coach, you know, he's not somebody you ever hear a rival complain about. He, he, they, they may not like the program, the team, but there's very few people out there that do not, you know, in some capacity, think pretty highly of the guy. Right. Absolutely. Um, so you, you chose to start the book with, um, with, uh, in, in, uh, 2017 with, I was going to say plane crash. It wasn't really a, a, a crash. It was a skidded off the runway, but it, it's sometimes referred to as a crash. I don't know how you technically refer to what happened, but, um, I wonder if you could just briefly explain to the listeners what happened with that incident and, and why you chose to start the book there. Yeah, no doubt. So the, the team was heading to the big 10 tournament in Washington, DC in, in March of 2017. And as you said, they took off on an incredibly windy day. Um, and there was an issue, uh, mechanically with the plane that the pilot basically noticed as they were taking off. And even though his co-pilot, uh, and, and ground control essentially wanted him to continue with the flight. Uh, he determined it was too risky and uh, immediately hit the brakes and tried to shut it down. As a result, they wound up skidding off the runway uh, in, into a fence. You know, it's a smoking plane that they had to uh, all get off as fast as they could. Um, and, and most of the reports, uh, looking back on it, have said that he he very likely saved a number of lives the pilot that is by by making his decision so the team hustled off that flight as fast as they could the entire traveling party they got everybody off uh really chaotic situation obviously everybody was uh you know really rattled by it and they held a team meeting and they decided they wanted to still make the trip you know coach beeline gave them the choice you know and would have totally understood either way. Uh, the team decided to, to fly there the next morning. 
Um, because of FAA regulations, everything that was on the plane had to stay on there. So they didn't have their uniforms. They flew down to Washington, D.C. and played their first game in the Big Ten tournament wearing their practice jerseys, uh, you know, which were basically just, you know, pennies, yellow on one side, blue on the other. Uh, and, and they went down there and, and they won that game wearing those practice jerseys and they won the next day, the next day, and the next day. They re- ran off four in a row. Um, you know, nobody expected them to win that tournament and it was sort of a galvanizing moment. Uh, and it, it stood out for me both from, you know, obviously a, a, a significant uh, experience and, and, you know, a bit of a grabber to start the book, but also in some ways uh, a turning point for Beeline um, where, you know, he adapted throughout his career, but he seemed to do a, a particularly after that incident, really appreciate things even more than he ever had, uh, delegate more, include others, uh, shifted his coaching style a little bit. And, and you know, it wound up leading to a, a nice run that year, you know, an even better one the next year and, and another successful year the year after. You touched on the fact that uh, when you were at school there, the, the program was going through tough times. Uh, I wonder if you could um, just take our listeners through what what the state of the Michigan program was when John Beeline arrived in Ann Arbor. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it had really stagnated. You know, it was, it was probably at its lowest point um, ever. You know, historically, a really proud program with a lot of great moments. Uh, but the, the Fab Five uh, had had a tremendous run. Uh, you know, Chris Weber, Jawan Howard, Jalen Rose, Ray Jackson, Jimmy King, one of the most notable, uh, famous college basketball teams of all time, had a lot of success. Uh, and years after the university discovered there's a booster uh, that had been compensating some of them financially, um, and they wound up, uh, the university wound up penalizing itself, basically, like really harsh sanctions. And they had a hard time recovering from it. Um, they wound up, Brian Ellerby took over after Steve Fisher was let go as a result, his program, he was, he was the head coach when I came in as a freshman and the program was really never on solid footing under his watch. Tommy Amaker came in and had six years there and, and didn't reach the tournament once. Um, you know, so it was, it was a decade since the team had played, had just gotten in the NCAA tournament when John Beeline came in. Uh, and I think, you know, apathy is probably as good a word to describe any as the state of the program at that point. It, it had been such a long uh, break since the team had been successful. And uh, that, that was what Beeline was walking into. Can you talk a little bit about John Beeline's life and career before he got to Michigan? Yeah, sure. Uh, he grew up in a small town in upstate New York. Uh, really big family, blue collar family, um, played college basketball at, at Wheeling Jesuit University in West Virginia, uh, went back home and became a high school history teacher and they needed a basketball coach. So he started coaching the JV team, uh, moved up to coach the varsity team, had success with that. And Erie Community College came calling and he jumped at that opportunity and moved up uh, against the advice of his dad, who, who felt like, you know, he had a really solid thing there going at that 
high school uh, teaching job. And that was something you should hold on to. And from Erie Community College uh, at the JC level, he moved on to an NAIA in Nazareth. Uh, again, in upstate New York, was successful there. Moved on to Lemoyne, which is a D2 program and uh, located in Syracuse. Uh, from there, it was on to Canisius, which is uh, his first Division One job. Took Canisius to the NCAA tournament and guided them to some of their best years. And finally, uh, it was time to leave upstate New York. University of Richmond hired him as their head coach. Again, reaches the NCAA tournament, has some of the, the program's best years there. And West Virginia uh, was, was his next stop. Took them to the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight uh, in consecutive years. Had some really great teams, started to garner some national recognition at that point. And finally, that Michigan job came available. So he was a head coach at every stop of the way. Uh, he was successful at every stop of the way and, uh, you know, kind of made his own breaks uh, everywhere he went. One of the, I guess I would say, central themes in the book is Beeline's emphasis on culture. How would you describe the coach's philosophy on on building a culture? Yeah, it, he really believed in people. Uh, I think that was sort of the foundation of it. He was always willing to sacrifice on talent to make sure he had the right character, uh, w which isn't something that you always see at, this, at the college basketball level. Uh, you know, he really prioritized getting quality people that came from good families, uh, kids that had growth mindsets that wanted to develop and would put in the work to do it. You know, one of their recruiting philosophies was that, you know, Beeline didn't necessarily make the final decision. Everybody did. And, you know, what, what, it, what they meant by that was kids would come in for a visit and if they were rude to the secretary, then the secretary would let them know and, and that wasn't going to be a fit for their program. You know, that they would have, they would be hosted by other players on the team and the coaches would ask the players, is this guy fit with who we are and what we're doing? And, you know, essentially everybody had a veto. Um, he became even more intentional about it after his first few years. In 2010, he and his staff actually defied, decided to define the program's core values. You know, they asked themselves, what, what are the things that we care about most? Uh, and, and what they chose was unity, passion, appreciation, integrity, diligence, and accountability. They felt like those th those would be the foundation of a program that had staying power uh, over the long haul. As long as they had kids and coaches and people that were invested in demonstrating those values on a daily basis, then you know th things would work out. Uh, so he talked about it all the time. It was emphasized every step of the way. Uh, you know, numerous instances where even just watching from afar, you could see where some of those shown through. Uh, it's posted everywhere, you know, throughout their training facilities, uh, their warm-up shirts had all, all those listed on them. Um, so that, that, that was the focus. And then in the last few years, it seemed to take an, an even bigger jump. Uh, you know, Xavier Simpson, uh, Charles Matthews were some of the most vocal leaders he ever had. And those guys really 
didn't give anybody a break on it. You know, the younger guys, everybody, they demanded that they match their effort, that they match their intensity, and that they live up to those values every day. Two guys I want to ask you about that I think most, you know, most college basketball fans aren't very aware of, but Michigan fans got to know them very well and understand their value to uh, building the program. And, and those are Stu Douglas and Zach Novak. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about them and their role in the program. Yeah, absolutely. They, you know, they, they were his first recruits. Um, two kids from Indiana uh, didn't have scholarship offers hardly anywhere. You know, some, some Ivy League offers, some real small school offers. Nobody wanted them. Uh, and Beeline was thrilled to have them because he believed they fit exactly what he wanted to build. They were going to give everything, you know, they had. And, you know, in hindsight, he looked back, he said, we just wanted two solid kids we could count on. Kids that ran through the doors at Michigan because they wanted to play in the Big Ten. Uh, he felt like that was going to drive uh, so much of what he wanted to accomplish. And, you know, Zach Novak was 6'4", and he played power forward for much of his career at Michigan. And it's sort of funny looking back on it and thinking about it. But, I mean, he was matched up with Draymond Green. You know, when they play Michigan State and he'd get in there and he gave it everything he had and he demanded his teammates do the same. Um, and, and Stu Douglas was, you know, a little bit more of a finesse three point shooter, uh, but but he was right there with them, you know, doing the same. And, and you know, Novak wound up playing 134 career games. He, he totaled over a thousand points and 500 rebounds. Um Douglas never missed a game. He played 136 of them, and uh, they really just stood out in terms of their grit and, and their mindset and the way they la laid the foundation for, you know, admittedly much more talented players that came after them, as they'll tell you, you know, but they, that culture I, I spoke about before, they, they were the foundation of it all. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I view it as it really brought some stability to the program something that was sorely lacking and stability and hard work and accountability. And um, as you said, some more talented recruits started to roll in. Uh, but Beeline never really got the, the one and done guys, right? He wasn't getting top 10 recruits. Maybe the biggest recruit in his time, I want to say was maybe Mitch McGarry. Um, but on, and in addition to that, Beeline was known um throughout college basketball as, as one of the cleanest coaches in college basketball, never had any, any hint of a scandal around him. So I wonder, given his clean image, why do you think players were so drawn to Beeline and, and guys like McGarry or a Trey Burke or, you know, a, a Mo Wagner from Germany wanted to play for coach Beeline? Yeah. I, you know, I think, you know, it's a certain segment of the players that, you know, that, uh, ethically sound footing he was on probably did really appeal. But I, I think more than anything, it, his success as a developer spoke for itself. You know, he got kids to the NBA. He got them better over their time. Kids that came in as three stars, you know, wound up going in the first round of the draft. Uh, once that track record was established, that, that, you know, that made sense. Hey, I can win in college and I can get to the league. Um, you know, but at, at first he, he had to sell guys on that. And, and I think that at that time it was 
throughout evaluating him. You know, he Trey Burke didn't have a lot of other exciting offers. Um, you know, Mo Wagner, there weren't a ton of teams over there chasing him around Germany, beating down the door to get him there. Uh, you know, Beeline had a different style of recruiting, and I think that made all the all the difference for him. You know, he, he really prioritized fit over pure talent. He looked for skill uh, more so than athleticism. He was really careful about who we extended offers to. You know, until a player had had an on-campus visit, until uh, their admissions office had, uh, approved the player's grades, he didn't offer them. It, you know, it was a measure twice, cut once approach of, of finding the right kids. And, you know, unlike a lot of programs, he ignored the industry rankings of, you know, who is a five star, who's a four star. He, he loved looking at players' birthdays, which I found fascinating. He, he found that to be one of the most um, instructive pieces of information he could get on a player because... He was interested in projection, uh, which is a big part of what I do in my work as a baseball scout. He, he wasn't looking at who's the best player right now. You know, that, that kid might be 19 playing against 17-year-olds, and he, he might have already hit his growth spurt and, and you know, be a full, full-grown man. Uh, whereas a player like Karis LeVert, you know, who's younger than everybody and as a result isn't evaluated very uh, strongly by the industry – Beeline looked at his body, looked at his frame, realized, you know, this is a kid who at his age, he, he's going to keep growing. Uh, he's got good actions. He can move. And, you know, Karis LeVert winds up going from Ohio University being all, one of his only offers to as a fresh, as an 18 year old freshman, he's playing in the national championship game. And a few years later, he's a first round pick. And, you know, now he's a borderline star in the NBA. Uh, Mo Wagner, Jordan Poole were other guys with, with really young birthdays. Uh, he really prioritized shooters, uh, you know, hard workers that he knew had been coached hard and were teachable with really good basketball IQ. Um, you know, as an evaluator, I, I feel like he's, he's, you know, second to none. You look at guys that um, were, were not highly thought of coming out of college that he was trying to get to come to Michigan that, that didn't wind up coming there. You know, Kawhi Leonard, Clay Thompson, Gordon Hayward, you know, these were all guys that, that he was in on that wound up going to, you know, not very significant programs and now are obviously among some of the best players in the world. Yeah, uh, and I I think Lavert is, you know, perhaps his best example because he is he's a heck of a player. Um, so 2012-2013 was – I, really a breakthrough year for Beeline and the program. He got to the final four for the first time in his career and, of course, advanced to the championship game. Um, what was special about that Michigan team? Yeah, it was a fun year. Um, you know, talent, really. Like that, that, That's one thing that separated that group. Um, you know, looking back now, there were six NBA players on that team, uh, which is pretty rare. You know, even even Kentucky has a hard time, you know, putting that many together when you look back at some of their teams. And, you know, they were led by the National Player of the Year, Trey Burke. Uh, you know, what, what an incredible season he had. Uh, it, it was a great mix. You know, they had veterans. You know, they had Burke. He was a sophomore, um, but, you know, had been through it a little bit. They, they had Tim Hardaway Jr. He was a junior. Uh, you know, Jordan Morgan, John Horford. 
some different players on the roster that are a little older. And then they had the young guys. They had the tremendous freshman class that year, uh, which was McGarry, which was Glenn Robinson Jr., Nick Stauskas, Karis Levert, and Spike Albrecht. Uh, you know, just a, a really good group, uh, you know, four of whom wind up playing in the NBA. Uh, and they all liked each other. You know, that they had the skill level typical of a beeline team, uh, but then they had a level of athleticism that he, he had really never coached before. You know, the offense was the best in the country, uh, according to, you know, all the advanced metrics and uh, tempo-free stats. They, you know, they had enough size. They had great shooting. They had ball handling. You know, they had enough depth. They, they had obviously great coaching. Just didn't have a lot of weaknesses. Uh, and it, it was a really fun group to watch. Yeah, and I love, I, I, I believe you pointed this out in the book that, um, you know, you just mentioned Glenn Robinson Jr. and, of course, Tim Hardaway Jr. and John Horford, all sons of NBA players. And, and I think, as you stated in the book, that, that's such a testament unto itself because uh, all three of those men, I know their fathers are in their lives and for them to want their sons to play for John Beeline is very telling in itself that that, that shows how well respected he is in the business and how well respected he is by, by players. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I think, and I think you can add in, you know, Xavier Simpson and Trey Burke, you know, two of his best point guards were both, coached by their dads in high school, both their dads, uh, really successful high school coaches in, in the state of Ohio that obviously know the game really well and, uh, you know, chose to, to send their, their kids to, to play for Beeline, speaks to his reputation in the game. Right. So, I, I mean, I think, you know, the best story in the book is, is the journey of Austin Hatch. Um, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about his life story and his relationship with the, with the program. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, an incredible story that, you know, transcends basketball. Certainly, uh, you know, Austin Hatch was a young man from Indiana. Um, you know, his dad, uh, was a doctor who, who loved to fly, you know, his free time. So the family would, uh, he had his pilot's pilot's license and, um, you know, the family would go on vacation and whatnot. Oftentimes dad would fly them there. And in 2003, uh, on one of those flights, they crashed, uh, in, in Austin lost his, his mom, his sister, and his brother, uh, in, in that crash, which, you know, obviously I think for most of us like that, <laughs> it'd be hard to go on period, uh, um, at, at that point. And, and, you know, him and his dad just, just bonded even deeper as a result. You know, they, all they had was each other. Um, and, you know, their, their relationship just went to the next level. Um, his dad made sure that Austin, you know, stayed about all the right things and on the right track and, you know, focused on school. And, you know, as a kid who loved basketball, you know, committed to getting better at that. Uh, you know what she did. He just he kept improving, kept improving, turned into quite a player. Uh, you know, John Beeline really enjoyed watching him and was excited to recruit him. You know, he looked back on the last time he had he had seen him play uh, in high school, and he, he said he reminded him of a young Wally Zerbiak. You know, just a he was a high school sophomore um, who had just had an absolute dominant performance and. Uh, 
Austin wound up committing to Michigan. Uh, his mom had gone there. His dad absolutely loved John Beeline and everything he was about. And uh, nine days after he made his commitment, uh, they happened to be flying again. And it was a second crash. Um, like, again, with Austin in the plane, uh, but his dad and his stepmom both passed away. And uh, Austin survived, but he was in a coma for eight weeks. And, uh, you know, just an incredible struggle even to walk again. Uh, you know, the, the things that he went through during that time period, relying on, you know, various extended family members. Uh, you know, he had a lot of good people in his life who, who stepped up to help him. But, you know, he wound up moving out to Los Angeles to live with his uncle, um, you know, because that was sort of the best option at the time and and worked uh, with a personal trainer and, and did everything that he could do to get back um, as much as he could. And he, he was told, you know, there's a pretty good chance you're not going to walk again. And the idea of him playing basketball again was, you know, not something that was really even discussed. Um, but he did. He persevered. You know, he got back out. He played on a competitive high school basketball team. He wound up making it to Ann Arbor. Um, his skills were certainly diminished. You know, he, he was nowhere near the level he was once at. But uh, he made it on the court. Uh, for a few games, he wound up uh, getting fouled shooting a three-pointer and made one of his free throws. So he got in the books for, uh, for you know, scoring a point. And, um, you know, a- after that, the, you know, the, the program and, and Austin made, you know, the, the difficult decision to put him on a medical uh, scholarship going forward. Uh, I think, you know, he, he knew that, you know, he, he wasn't going to be able to get back to, to where he needed to get back to. Um, but he stayed right there with the program. You know, he was an assistant, uh, with the team an undergraduate assistant. He was right there with them through everything, uh, provided the players with, you know, an incredible amount of perspective. You know, they, they knew his story. They knew what he had been through and, you know, he had a smile on his face every day, every day he was there. He was appreciative. Uh, he's, he's gone on to become a motivational speaker, uh, since graduating, him and Coach Beeline obviously have an incredibly uh, close relationship. And, you know, what Austin Hatch means to the program and, and what the program means to, to Austin Hatch are, are things that, you know, sort of go beyond all the wins and losses. Yeah, I, he's just a remarkable human being. Uh, I heard him say once he's only had two bad days in his life. <laughs> I mean, it's really something else. amazing. Um, so you've talked a little bit, you've talked, you've mentioned some of the things that some of the qualities that made coach Beeline so successful at Michigan and elsewhere. Um, another one I'd like to bring up, which you talk about in the book. In, in fact, uh, I think there's a chapter called constant adaptation or something to that effect, but um, is, is it's coach Beeline's adaptability. And I wonder if you could explain some ways in which he changed uh, throughout his coaching career, even potentially during his time at Michigan. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think he, uh, you know, he said at one point, you know, I've been coaching for, you know, 40 something years. So the only reason I'm still coaching is because I've embraced change, you know, at every step along the way. He's constantly seeking to, you know, improve himself, improve uh, his style, improve his techniques. And, uh, you know, you can see it when, when you look at his track record, you know, it used to be more of a, 
Princeton sort of style offense, heavy back cutting, um, you know, a lot of motion around the perimeter uh, in his West Virginia days and earlier. And, you know, particularly starting with that 2012-13 team with Trey Burke, all of a sudden it went heavy ball screens because he realized I've got an elite ball handler, decision maker, scorer at all three levels that can get the ball to the big guy uh, or do it himself. This is, you know, a different way than I've always done it, but wow, we can be really successful doing it. Um, You know, whereas in the past it used to be, you know, getting a backdoor layup. Now, now he's got Glenn Robinson cutting backdoor. So they shifted to the alley-oop, you know, whereas at one point he was very controlling, um, you know, in his younger years, particularly after that plane crash, he began delegating significantly to his assistant coaches and, you know, adjusted his style in that regard. Uh, his off seasons, he'd go study the NBA. He'd, he'd go spend time at, uh, you know, NBA training camps or talking to coaches, looking just to glean a few things that maybe, you know, he, he could include, um, he, he opened up a lot to analytics, you know, in an area that he was sort of reticent to, uh, to go with at, at, at one point. And then, you know, all of a sudden he was breaking down the game and listening to his, uh, you know, his strength coaches, people, when they came to him with data analysis that, that had information, guy used technology all the time. Um, you know, they had a, uh, a shooting uh, measuring device, basically. It's called Noah's Ark, which, which measures the arc on every player's shot, you know, which he loved to use. They, they wore um, uh, pieces on their back that would measure their stress levels during practice. So he knew how hard to have them go, you know, which if you asked his younger self, you know, he probably would have rolled his eyes at all these things. Um, But probably the biggest example of his adaptability as a coach uh, was recognizing that defensively his teams had had really not been um, up to the level they needed to be at, you know, to, to be as good as he wanted to be. He's a, unbelievable offensive mind. He's always had tremendous offenses, beautiful to watch and incredibly efficient, but defenses had, had really just been fair. And, uh, you know, so he originally, uh, hired Billy Donlin to be his defensive coordinator in 2016, 17. Uh, Donlin was, was there a year before deciding to go be closer to home, uh, at, at Northwestern. And then he, Luke Yaklich came in, and uh, really turned their team around that year, um, the 2017-18 team that, that made the national championship. And, you know, for a coach who'd been as successful as, as John Beeline throughout his career, doing it his way to be willing to cede half the game to an outsider, all in an effort to get better, and it really speaks volumes of, of, about his level of adaptability. Absolutely. Um, as you just mentioned, uh, uh, Michigan returned to the championship game in 2018. Um, how did that team compare to the 2013 team? Yeah, you know, another awesome year. That that was kind of the year that really inspired me or pushed me over the edge to to begin work on this book. Uh, they they weren't as talented as the 2013 team. They they sort of caught everybody off guard. You know, Beeline himself said he thought it was sort of a remodeling year. You know, they started slow. Uh, early in the year, they played North Florida, Central Michigan, and Southern Mississippi 
and they were trailing in the second half to all three. Uh, you know, it's kind of crazy to think about. Uh, they weren't even ranked until January 15th. And, and then right after getting ranked, they promptly lost to Nebraska by 20. You know, a team that hadn't beaten them in years. Um, but they kept fighting back and they kept getting better. You know, if you're watching, you saw them, you saw the, the glimmers of improvement of development that uh, you often saw on a beeline team, you know, early in the season that they didn't have a point guard. You know, they had some guys trying to do it, the position, just work getting it done. Um, but eventually Xavier Simpson, you know, as a sophomore turned into the guy that, you know, he, he's since became and, uh, and really claimed the position, solidified it. Uh, everybody settled in, you know, from that point forward, Mo Wagner, addressed all his weaknesses from the year before, uh, you know, and improved Charles Matthews, a, a transfer from Kentucky uh, after, you know, his mandated red shirt year, he became that team's defensive stopper. Uh, you know, their, their younger players stepped in Duncan Robinson, you know, who's now having a great NBA season um, improved his defense and, you know, was always a great three point shooter and, and really just everybody slotted into their roles um, you know, after losing, they lost February 6th and from that point on, they went almost two months without a loss. You know, they ran the table the rest of the regular season. They won four games in four days to win their second consecutive big 10 tournament. Uh, and, and then they made their run all the way to the national championship game where they ran into a phenomenal Villanova team and, and couldn't quite finish it off. But it's just a classic John Beeline development story. You know, individuals grow and get better. Um, from where they were the year before. And, and then over the course of the year, they get better. The team improves with, you know, a, a second half leap and, and then, you know, a, a tournament run. You know, these were things he had done throughout his career. Um, but, you know, this just seemed to be to a whole nother degree. And unlike those other teams, defense was really the driver. You know, it was, it was Luke Yaklich coming in and, you know, it, when they were trailing in the second half early in the year to those uh, weaker teams, the defense wasn't there yet. But over time, uh, you know, Xavier Simpson just became, you know, as the team referred to him, a pit bull uh, on on opposing teams, point guards. Charles Matthews was a stopper on the wing and they just demanded that everybody else match their level. Uh, and it was just a really fun team to watch and, and to follow. Yeah, that, I, I'd love that team for many of the reasons that you stated. Um, and then, of course, uh, the following season, 2018-2019, Michigan had another excellent season. Uh, they eventually lost in the Sweet 16 to Texas Tech, who, of course, came very close to winning the championship themselves. Um, and that, of course, ended up being John Beeline's final season in Ann Arbor. Uh, what do you think John Beeline's legacy is at the University of Michigan? Yeah, I mean, the greatest coach in program history. Um, you know, I think he fit sort of the ideal of, of a Michigan man, or I guess of what the, you know, the larger Michigan community sort of holds up as their ideal of it. Uh, you know, he, he did everything the right way. Uh, you know, his values and his ethics just fit in perfect at, you know, what is a really, you know, proud and demanding community. You know, I think zero mixed feelings, you know, instead, I think just everybody practices his core value of appreciation for everything that he did for the university, 
Um, you know, he made it back for senior night this year and, uh, you know, standing ovations and, uh, you know, everybody really loves the guy and, and it wasn't just the winning, but it was also how he did it. And, uh, you know, as a result, his legacy is secure. Um, you know, and he'll always be beloved in Ann Arbor. Yeah. Well, the one thing that you said, I really liked is zero mixed feelings. When you said that, it just really hit me like, yes, it's, I'm, I'm, you know, you, you won't find a, a Michigan person anywhere who has a bad word about John Beeline. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so, of course, Beeline left University of Michigan to, uh, to move up, not move up, or move on to the NBA. Um, and unfortunately, uh, didn't work out very well for him. He made it about a half a season with the Cleveland Cavaliers before uh, the that he and the team parted ways. Why do you think things didn't work out with, with Beeline in Cleveland? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, in hindsight, I think it was just a doomed marriage, um, you know, to begin with, I, I, I thought, you know, so highly of the guy that I thought maybe he had a chance to overcome some of the uh, issues, but uh, you know, <laughs> looking back on it now, he didn't have much of a chance to begin with. And that's not to say that he's blameless, but you know, the front office just did not put him in a position to succeed. You know, they, they had a lot of uh, veterans making a whole lot of money that they really didn't need to be there because they were not interested in hard work. You know, they were not interested in listening to a new coach or, or you know, putting in the type of work he was talking about. And, you know, at times they were antagonists and, you know, really affected what Beeline was trying to build. Um, you know, a number of draft picks were sort of square pegs and in round holes, you know, guys that played the same positions, guys that had sort of obvious flaws that didn't make a whole lot of sense for what they were being asked to do. And, you know, the team lacks shooting. And if John Beeline is going to be head coach, like you got to go out and get, you know, players that can shoot and pass the ball because that's the, the foundation of his offense and, and what he's trying to teach. Um, you know, I mean, organizationally they're, they're a mess. You know, it's, it's a meddling owner and they've really never done anything without LeBron there. Um, so I, I don't know that anybody can, you know, go fix them without a much larger overhaul involving more than, than just the head coach. Um, all that being said, I think he totally miscalculated too. You know, I don't think he realized what a bad situation it was, uh, what a toll all the losing would have on him and, and also how hard it is for an NBA coach to, change a culture without an organizational commitment at all levels behind him. Right. It's a whole different deal when you're not picking the players too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Tim, I, I've taken enough of your time. Um, I'll ask you one final question that I like to ask all of my guests. What is your all time favorite sports book? Ooh, that's an interesting one. Um, I'm going to go with, well, I'm going to go with Moneyball. And the reason being uh, a very good book or certainly a very good story. Uh, I think that's Michael Lewis's strength. You, you can sort of poke holes in some of the specifics here or there, particularly the more I've actually been involved in the game and, and, and seen it. But he, he definitely writes a good story. And it had a big impact on my life because I didn't realize as somebody that hadn't played professional baseball or college baseball or anything. Uh, 
and didn't know exactly what they were going to do in their life. When that book came out and I read it and I realized that there was actually an opportunity to work in professional sports, uh, that, that was sort of a game changer. It set me off on the path that, uh, that I wound up on. And, and now with, uh, you know, with the job that I really love. Yeah, it was uh, certainly a groundbreaking book. Um, all right. Well, Tim Rooney, thank you so much for your time. I'll, I just want to say again, of course, the book is called John Beeline at Michigan, a basketball revival. Uh, it's a great read. You know, obviously Michigan fans will love this, love reliving the glory days and of Beeline of the Beeline years and finding out more details about what, about what went on. But if you're just interested in coaching in, in any sport at any level or leadership, um, it's an excellent read for for those reasons as well. So I encourage everybody to check it out. Tim, thanks again for being on the show and uh, best of luck to you with the book. Thank you, Paul. It was a pleasure.